All right, welcome to another episode of On the Streets. I'm your host, as always, Jordan Orada, and today we're going to be talking about burn for the pre-hospital provider. With us today is Dr. Benson Pulicottle, burn and plastic reconstructive microsurgeon at the Burn and Reconstructive Centers of America here at Swedish. He's also the burn medical director here, correct? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jordan. It's an honor and pleasure to be working with you guys today. I've worked briefly with you on some outreach opportunities, and they've all been successful, so I'm looking forward to having another successful venture today here with you. Well, I always feel like we have a good a good vibe together, so we'll see. Awesome. Hopefully it shows Absolutely. today. And we also have another guest with us, uh, Sean McConnell, who's a former flight nurse, currently a volunteer paramedic and firefighter, burn center charge nurse, and education specialist with Burn and Reconstructive Centers <laughs> of America, right? Mouthfuls <clears throat> for both of you. It is, yeah. yeah I, need a, I need a big business card at the, end, at the very <laughs> end of the day. But thank you for having me on the show. It's awesome to be here. Yeah, and you also do a lot of podcasts, so when we get into some of that later, I'd love to share where we can find more of your content uh, with our listeners. So Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Well, let's just get into it. For starters, what are a couple of the most common mistakes that the two of you have seen made pre-hospitally with burn patients that you kind of have to do some correction with? I think starting off, getting that initial phone call, having a correct total body percent of a surface area of the burn is actually uh, one of the most common errors we see because that really dictates all the downstream care. So Getting an accurate assessment of the burn really is uh, something that should be uh, taught and really educated in the rural settings, in our settings, in all settings. Because, you know, some people get confused. You could come in with a 100% sunburn and be bright red, but you're not necessarily going to get a resuscitation. So in our centers, we use about 20% of second degree or more warrants a resuscitation. So that is typically seen as a blistering injury something like that. So I think that's one of the main things that we see. Another type of error is some of the dressings. And sylvidine has long been thought of as a very good burn dressing and treatment. And it's not bad. The issue with it is people tend to put it on and cake it on. So when patients come to our outpatient clinic, we really can't assess the burn wound without removing it. And that can be painful and that can really delay some of the care. So, you know, I know you're going to get into some of the dressing stuff, which I'll hold off on, but that can be challenging. Also, sylvidine has some electrolyte issues and things like that, that we, we tend to avoid it if we can. But if you have it and that's your only means, then use it. But if you have other options and we can talk about that, Jordan, Sean, what do you think? I like those. I think those are really good points. When I start thinking about what two things I, I see where we could always improve on, I like the topics that kind of cross both fields. They, they cross that pre-hospital field and they certainly cross that burn center field. And so the two things that came to my mind was hypothermia and then IV fluid resuscitation. Back in the day when I was new to burn and when I was new to being in EMS, hypothermia was this second thought, you know, because there's so many other priorities. And so hypothermia, I think we just need to make it a priority because when you have a lot of stuff going on in an ER when you're stabilizing that burn or in a burn unit even because hospitals are not immune to making their patients hypothermic. It's something that we concentrate a lot on here at the burn center. And so I think we, we always have to have that in the forefront of our mind. And in the field, it's no different because you've got a, a long list of things to do and then you've got a short time to do them and generally not a lot of resources to get those accomplished. And that, that's the low-hanging fruit, right? Right. Just keep them warm. Just keep them warm. Which is kind of counterintuitive for a new provider in the field. The person's already been burned. You think you want to cool them off, put cold water right, on them, cold yeah. pack, something like that, but that is absolutely not the case, right? Well, and we frequently see these patients come in hypothermic because they can't regulate anymore, right? They're losing right. that. Because people think that in the summertime that their patients aren't going to get cold. And when that medic or, or flight nurse is, you know, sweating and they're hot 
and it's summertime, the last thing they think about is turning on the heater. When they're going to that call, the big thing that I talk about in our series that we do is this uh, preparation. And when you're going to that burn call, you should turn the heat on in your rig. You should already have your IV fluids warm. And you should think about when you're moving that patient from that warm environment to a cool environment like the ambulance bay to get them to the ER. Or if you're taking that patient from the burn ICU to the OR. Those are stages that we, we frequently find hypothermic, I guess, you know, the patient's vulnerable to become hypothermic. And so you have to really preemptively think about that. Blankets, warmers, you know, pile it on before you start opening up these doors and rolling them down the hall. And then IV fluid. You know, we always think of IV fluid is kind of this very simple thing that it's not going to hurt anyone. But in the burn patient, you could easily get overloaded very quickly when you're multitasking. And so I think it's a, it's really a very important step to find a process that keeps you on track and on goal. And so that's something I think that we all need to focus on too. And most EMS providers are familiar with the Parkland formula, don't necessarily know it in and out. Burn is a great topic to talk about. I'm so glad you guys are here today because it's one of those really infrequent injuries that we see in the field, but these patients can be really terrifying, really sick. And how do you prioritize the care? And I think you already covered kind of those Mm -hmm. four top ones. And I think when I think about burn, that covers most of it. That's really the, the basics. So if we're talking about any other basics that we really want to drill in for these, you know, a brand new EMT sure. or a skilled paramedic, you know, how do you prioritize that? You know, kind of going off what Sean has said, and some really important points he made in terms of the fluid. So when you call one of our centers, it's either myself, Dr. Daniele, or another provider that'll pick up the phone. It's not someone who's not well-versed in burn. So the first question we're going to ask, is what's the percentage? And we'll take a second, take a calculator out and calculate what the rate should be. I'll give you an example. A couple days ago, I got a patient sent from, I don't know, several hours away. They calculated a 15% burn. You know, when I talked to them and they're working hard out there, you know, they, they, don't necessarily have all the expertise nor the resources. I kind of sifted through all of the information and got it down to a 7%. And so I asked about what the fluid would be, fluid rate would be, and they said that they've already given a liter and they were going to give a total of five liters wide open. So there's a kind of a disconnect in terms of what needs resuscitation and how much. So for you, that doesn't even qualify as a full resuscitation, right? And so I explained then, educated, and we had an awesome conversation. And we actually, you know, Heidi's in in the room, who's also an amazing resource for us, and she's going to help provide some of that education out there. But the consequences of not having that discussion would be that patient would come in with maybe five or six liters positive, talk about and have some of those complications of over resuscitation, and we wouldn't even address any of that stuff. So it's really important right at the get-go to get those kind of basics done. Now, some other things, you know, you want to make sure are the burn is important and burns can be intimidating. That's why people get nervous around them. They see a burn patient, they sometimes freeze and don't know what to do. I'll tell you, the burn isn't what's going to kill the patient. It's all the additional stuff. And we, it's almost like a mantra, overlook the burn, check out the other trauma. You're not doing that patient any services if you're staring at the burn, but the patient has a skull fracture or a brain bleed or a pneumo, a tension pneumo or a bowel injury or a femur fracture with compartment syndrome. So you definitely want to ensure that your trauma team, and we have an amazing trauma team here, you know, led by Dr. Banton, that definitely we call them and we entrust that role for them to check the patient from the head to the toe and make sure that we can start doing our thing because we don't even calculate a TBSA until they're done with their portion. That's very, very patient and big of you to let them have the patient first, do their their fancy, sexy stuff before you even start working. What they do (laughs) is actually the life-saving portion. They're going to get that patient 
you know, suited up, lined up, check for any issues. And then, and it's not like they're walking away. We do our assessment and then we come to a plan together. And that's the benefit of having this system here at Swedish is we don't necessarily do all of the critical care, but we're involved in it. And so you have multiple teams looking at the patient through different eyes. And so when we're calculating the resuscitation, for example, it's three or four people doing the calculation and you'd be surprised. Sometimes I forget to carry the one, you know, and so uh, it's good to have people that can get your back. And we feel very honored and lucky to work with the trauma team, with the nurses, with the ER, everyone who knows us and who work with us know that we have a common goal and really expedite the care and get them to the unit and get the care started. It's interesting you say that because every specialist I've talked to about any topic that they're an expert on, really they lean heavily on that collaborative approach because I think we in the field recognize that too. We're often out on our own working by ourselves Mm -hmm. or just with your partner or maybe a volunteer fire department who doesn't have a ton of experience, but you always have your physicians to lean on. You always have that number to call Mm -hmm. and it really is an approach as a team. And I think it's it's great to hear that that's the same in the hospital. Now, even as a, a really brilliant, hardworking specialist, you still have to lean on each other for different skill sets. And I think, you know, going back to the pre-hospital standard is kind of what you were talking about. I think there's some things, some simple low-hanging fruit, like you said, that we can do in the field is unless a patient is hemodynamically unstable, you really don't need to just have fluids running open. You can put them at a rate, a reasonable rate, and there's rates that the ABA has calculated in the pre-hospital setting and just let them run if they're stable. And, you know, for dressings, we try to keep it simple, nothing too fancy. Just put some Vaseline gauze and Bacitracin if you have it. Just throw Vaseline gauze on it. Really important things to watch out for are our eyes. And so when patients have multi-trauma and when um, there's big burns, we tend to focus on the extremities, focus on, you know, this mangled leg with bone sticking out, and you tend to transfer the patient without really paying attention to the eyes. So really irrigate the eyes out and just throw a bunch of Xeriform on it and put some 4x4s and just protect the eyes because that's going to be a devastating injury if the patient has some kind of corneal injury or globe disruption or something like that. And that can happen. And so we've never fortunately had that happen, but um, I think it's because our people in the field, they're experts. And like you said, this is only successful if everybody knows their role and takes their role seriously and has that one common goal that they're all striving for. And Sean, I think you could probably speak to this as well because you've been pre-hospital provider and in the hospital. And, you know, pre-hospitally, we have pretty limited resources. We don't have sylvanium. We don't have all these great resources that we have in the hospital. We're looking at four by fours, Mm -hmm. sterile water, maybe some saline if we're, you know, haven't used it to run five liters into this patient and uh, and some Vaseline gauze if we're lucky, right? Sure. So yeah. so how do you decide what kind of burn gets dry dressing versus wet dressing versus Vaseline? And really, how do you even differentiate a burn? What is the visual cue when you're looking at, like you said, a sunburn that's maybe starting to blister versus something that's totally charred away in black? And how do you gauge mm-hmm. that in-between space? You know, that's a great question, Jordan. Uh, you know, when you get on scene, the, the biggest things you want to kind of figure out is, do you have enough help? Right off the bat, is this a critical patient? If you've got a long transport, I always teach that if you have a long transport, you either need to be moving towards help or you need to have help moving towards you. And there's a lot of different resources out there, whether it be a helicopter or maybe it's a supervisor vehicle, someone else who's got more experience, or you just need to load it up and get moving towards the hospital. And so I think that's kind of the biggest thing. But when you get on scene and you see this burn patient, most of these patients are going to, the burning process is going to be done. And so you really just need to evaluate, is it greater than 20%? 
or not? And then are there other injuries? And what type of thermal, is it a thermal injury, chemical? Is it a alkaline injury or do they have an inhalation injury? And that's one of the biggest things that we push is to try to figure out, get a good story. You know, you have to get in there and ask questions, ask questions to the patient if they're able to answer. If not, the neighbor, you know, the driver, the passerby, you know, uh, family members, get a good story to see if, number one, if they've got a risk for inhalation injury. So then when you start looking at the burn, you know, like you said, and like Dr. Policato said, you kind of have to ignore that burn. You have to just kind of walk through it and say, okay, am I seeing any other injuries? Let's get some O's on this patient. Let's get him in a warm environment. Let's get IV going. And let's see if we need to do anything beyond that. And then if you need resources, get them going. So when you start looking at the burn, if you've got most of the supplies in the ambulance, you like you talked about, very simple stuff. You've got normal saline, sterile water. A lot of uh, ambulances and flight teams carry a burn sheet. And so my first impression would, would be basically just keep them warm and put that on top of them. Uh, if it's a alkaline injury with powder, like concrete, that's a big thing that you want to rinse that off. But beyond that, the burn is probably just going to be what it is for that 10 to 15 minutes. And Dr. Pulicott will tell me if that's something different, but I, I think for the most part in EMS, it's just kind of get it going. But then you want to you want to see if it's over 20% or not, or if it's in an area that's very sensitive, your face, genitalia, any major joints, if you've got a large percentage of, of second degree, or if you've got any third degree, if you've got inhalation injury, all of those things, you want to make sure you go to the right facility. A burn center is where that all the resources, all the expertise is going to be there. And ultimately what that means is that that patient gets better outcomes because they get better care because they've got the experiences in the hospital. But, you know, first degree, no blistering, but it's red and painful. Uh, second degree, generally speaking, it's, it's got blisters, painful, red. It can be in different depths, but for the most part, it could already, the blisters could already be busted and they could kind of like a, a sloughing of the skin. And then third degree is going to be a way different animal for the most part. It's a lot thicker. You can tell that it's a, it's a deeper burn. It's going to feel different. It's going to kind of look uh, leathery and white. It's just going to contrast any skin color very dramatically. And uh, most of the time, that's not the most painful, but they almost never have just a third degree burn. What they have is different stages of burns all over the place. And in the burn unit here, what we end up doing is once the patient comes in, we almost never take that patient right to the OR. We take them into our debridement room. We clean them off. We get the wound thoroughly assessed. And then like Dr. Policato said, we we put that basic dressing, bacitration, xeriform, and curlix. Obviously pain control. And then we let that wound kind of sit there for about 24 hours. And then it kind of presents itself. It takes about that amount of time to really see the depth of the burn. I, I really liked what you said about as a key foundational piece of pre-hospital care is focusing on the story. You're on scene. Your eyes as the physician in the hospital are never going to be on that scene. Absolutely. And so how important <clears throat> it is for an EMT or paramedic to really soak that in, to know what they're looking at, to recognize that, yeah, this guy was out at a campsite fell in the fire and then jumped in the dirty lake and now he's covered in bacteria filled water that matters for your care down the road that's absolutely true or, and all the withdrawals he's about to go through i mean yeah and so yeah. i think all those small details on scene is something that not only in burn but across the board is something so important for pre-hospitals really get good at studying those scenes and knowing what's going on so that you can relay that to the hospital right mm -hmm. absolutely i think that you know sean's description of the burns are uh, uh, right on point. There are so many tests and imaging modalities that have been looked at, are being looked at to determine burn depth. And I think I read something recently that said 
the burn surgeon, just by looking, there's been a study that shows that a burn surgeon, just looking at a burn, determining the appropriate depth, it's like 50% or 60% that they can accurately assess it. So really, the only way to do it in a consistent and really expeditious fashion is taking them to the operating room and really looking. And so the story is going to help you a lot. If you know that, and you're going to get into some of this stuff, but just as a pre here, we can talk about some of the electrical injuries. They look like there's not much injury there. But if you don't know that the patient had an electrical injury, you're going to say, oh, it's not a big burn. But if the EMT or the, the field person tells you that, hey, listen, this guy, a lineman working on something and fell off and got into a propane explosion or something, it's a part of the story, then you're like, wow, this is, we need to get cardiac monitored. We need yeah, to that's going to be big. Yeah. And so it's really important that the story is detailed and as detailed as can be. Because when these patients come in, we all stop to hear the story together. And so we never downplay that. That's very, very important. Well, that that brings us kind of right into the next thing is tell me a story about a complex kind of difficult case that came from the field and highlight maybe something that went really well pre-hospitally and a failure or something that they could have done better. I think, you know, we had a recent case. A patient had a... uh, multi-trauma. And, and that's always challenging. When when it's a pure-on burn, we can get the assessment done correctly. Trauma can pretty much clear the patient and we get going. It's when you have the multi-trauma, the brain bleed, the lung injury, plus the burn. Now you've, that patient is put into a different category in terms of survivability. This particular patient had a chemical burn and had a thermal burn and had a bunch of organic material. And so, you know, this patient became septic very quickly. And so I think that, you know, looking for opportunities for improvement altered some of our decontamination processes based on this patient. And subsequently, a few days later, we had a much bigger burn on a sicker patient who has many more comorbidities that we use that new decontamination process. And he is doing awesome. He was talking to me yesterday. So I think that one of the things that we really improved are the decontamination process. In terms of things that go really well, especially in this particular case, I think our resuscitation goes very well. It's nurse-driven. The initial decisions are made by the trauma team and the burn reconstructive team. We put our heads together with the nurses, and we come up with, like I said, a value. And we are checking, pretty common to use the urine output, and we use other hemodynamic mo- uh, monitoring parameters as well. And an hour-to-hour basis for that first day or so, we are checking numbers. We're talking to each other. It's really collegial. The communication was great on this patient. And we were able to figure out that this patient needed this much fluid and got that much fluid. I mean, there's always opportunities for every, even a case that you think went was a home run. When you look back and dissect it, you can find some things. Hey, this patient was hypothermic in the OR for an hour. Or, hey, this person's, you know, had a superficial venous thrombus or a DVT or something like that. So it's really important to not just, you know, high five all the time and really, and we're hard on ourselves. And I know I've worked with Sean for a number of years and he knows that, and I know him and he knows myself, that we challenge ourselves to make sure that what we are doing for the patient is what we want for ourselves and not for our family. And so that often entails some hard decisions, some just being very hypercritical about the care. And that's how you take it to the next level. And so I think that every case that's complex, you know, Lindsay, who's our quality manager, and Helena, who's part of our quality team, and uh, actually Lindsay's our burn program manager. And so we sit down together, 
And these guys are just experts. They're looking at all of the different filters, and we're looking at from the second that patient gets there, how long they were in the ER, how long it took for this, how long it took for that, and how long for a consult to come in. And we improve it every time. So I think that every complex case, there's a, an opportunity for improvement. In this particular case, like I said, I think the resuscitation went very well. Another thing that went really well is this guy had a really swollen arm, and it, it was impending. Like his hand and upper extremity perfusion was being limited. We did escherotomies with within a couple hours. His first excision was the next day, and his second excision was the following day. So, I mean, this guy got excised very quickly, and I think that that really can improve survivability in patients. It is shown to. In the past, you know, people, you know, 40, 50 years ago, they treated burns with just dressings and seeing what happens. Now, this would led to like a 50, 60, 70% mortality on smaller burns. And so now, we, by excising early, getting that source of inflammation away and taking care of providing skin, like you so mentioned, why are these patients getting hypothermic? Because the skin is gone, and the skin is one of the most thermoregulatory organs. It is the thermoregulatory organ in the body. And so providing that or providing a skin substitute can really improve survivability. That's a couple of really interesting things you said there. I think that EMS isn't always the best at keeping up on on current practices. And I think a lot of what we learn in EMT and paramedic school still kind of <coughs> thinks about burn as it existed 30, 40 years ago. What you guys do now is really impressive and spectacular. And these patients have incredible outcomes. Patients who you would never <clears throat> expect to survive have great outcomes and walk out of the hospital because you're so aggressive. And I think that that is a great point for EMS is that these patients, while they look scary and they're not something you see a lot, is they can have incredible success stories if you can get them to the right resource, get them a little fluid and keep them warm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, our initial focus was just to have that burn patient survive. I mean, like Dr. Policato was talking about many years ago. But now we're in the 95, 96%, you know, survival rate. And these big burns are surviving. And so now our, we're switching gears a little bit to promote, well, we, we do a lot of effort or put a lot of effort and a lot of work towards preventing complications and infection. And those kind of things are what are going to take a patient out of our <coughs> hospital environment. They're not going to make it. And, and sepsis is the biggest cause of mortality in the, in hospital. And so we focus a lot on that. So we dive into the processes. And so now we really support the rehabilitation, the long-term kind of, we switch, you know, into that sixth gear to really support our patients and it's the collaboration. That's the biggest part. I think that in my, my experience, what really does make a difference is all the teams, nutrition, pharmacy, trauma, burn, nursing, PT, OT, and then the, you know, the emotional support, uh, all of that kind of goes into it. And that's been something that I've been really impressed in, in knowing this program and seeing what you can do. Benson's great, does a ton of lectures and and it's so amazing how much time and energy your team puts into that aftercare and really helping these patients reintegrate into society when they feel like it's going to be hard because they look different or they feel different about themselves and they have this catastrophic injury, but providing so much emotional support and truly love. Like your team just pours love on these patients in a way that, that really gives them the strength to get back and, and have a full life afterwards. I think that ultimately the surgeons, we do a lot of hand surgeries. As well. You know, we're board certified hand surgeons. And I always say my surgery is 5% of the outcome. 95% is the therapist. And I think that's the same with burn surgeons. I think 10% is actually doing the surgery. 90% is nutrition, therapists, the nursing, the people like Corbin and Missy who go in and change dressings and help out. I mean, these people are talking to these patients. And so often our patients aren't, you know, the CEOs of corporations. It can be a homeless person, like you said, who's burned his tent and has no friends or family. And guess what? They're coming back to clinic healed. And the first thing they want to do is go to the unit to thank people. And that's a testament to the collaborative efforts 
of all of the people that are involved with care. You know what I mean? They're not coming to, you know, hey, thank you so much for putting a skin graft. No, they're like, hey, how's Corbin doing? How's Missy doing? This person doing, or the nutrition, or whoever, you know, like the maintenance person doing. That's that's who they're wanting to see. And so I think that that's what I, and, and I, we love that. That's what we want to hear because a burn is much more than just a physical thing. It's a mental thing and it's a psychological thing and it's a psychosocial thing. And so that's why we have support groups. That's why we have, you know, another study shows that even a burn that's a small burn, it can have not just a effect at a year, but you can have lifelong effects from these burns. And it can be not just psychosocial or a scar. You can have physiologic effects, your metabolism, things change. And so that's underrepresented, I think, when you talk about burns, because everyone's so focused on, hey, let's get the resuscitation, let's get the skin on, let's do this and then you know we'll get them out we got to make sure that the the days the hospital days are low and so at the end of the day that's and that's why i really pride myself on being part of our group the burn research centers of america we do things a little bit differently and we can get you know there's there's some heat we get for it but i'll tell you we see 20 percent of the country's burns and we have the world's biggest network and our outcomes are i would say they're phenomenal and our resources are phenomenal. And just as an example, if we have a major catastrophe here in Colorado, we can fly 15 to 20 surgeons who are credentialed here, 75 PAs, and we can take care of things. Another thing that we do a little bit differently is we tend to use a lot of cadaver skin. And the reason why is cadaver skin is the closest thing to normal skin. And so whereas you can use dressings and see patients daily and have them change the dressings, but that's painful. And so by using cadaver skin, we excise a burn, we put the cadaver skin on, we leave it. And then the next time they go to the operating room, they're asleep, we take off the cadaver skin. If what's under is bleeding, we know we can skin graft at that point. If it's not bleeding, we have to do a further excision and we'll put cadaver skin back on. And, you know, some of the people may talk about the cost of this. And ultimately, we really believe that we're going to do the right thing for the patient is not to take their own skin unless we know that wound bed is going to accept it. So we're not going to accept a 60% acceptance rate of a skin graft. We want 100%. And 95% is good, but we want 100%. So the only way to really do that is using that cadaver skin, fooling the body into trying to grow into that cadaver skin at the last second, taking it off and making sure that wound bed is uh, ready. And that's, that's I think a lot of centers do things like that, but that's a real important tenant in our center. And, uh, you know, I'm proud to be one of the directors here. And I think that ultimately the care that we provide is different in just the, the credentials that we all have, but it's, I think it's a next level. That's so fascinating to hear about and get a kind of a glimpse into what that care looks like. Sure. Seems like a hybrid of like high science and like dark arts a little bit, like taking cadaver skin, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Very, very interesting though. Yeah. So let's go back to some of the, something you had mentioned before is about decontamination. And I think that's probably a huge issue for most burn centers because these patients are coming from all over a region and it's hard to keep track of has a patient been decontaminated? Who is taking responsibility for that? How well was it done? And do they even know what kind of decon they should do if there is some concrete? Is it water? Is it cold water? Is it warm water? Is it just spraying them off with air? Is it brushing with a towel? I think there's a lot of fear and misconception about that because you don't want to do it wrong. Mm -hmm. What uh, would you suggest for the field provider about decontamination? Yeah, yeah, great question, Jordan. You know, one of the things that I always think come back to when I talk about burns is that these are low frequency, high acuity. So you're not going to see them very often. And when you do see them, they're usually, you know, you're zero to 60 really quick. And so these big house fires, these patients come out and then, uh, you know, 
all these thermal burns for the most part, unless they had to crawl through a, a dirty river or they had maybe some meth products, some meth production kind of stuff that they need to have, you know, decontaminated. Most of the time, warm water for sure, because, you know, you can easily make these people hypothermic. So I think really understanding where that patient came from, that's again, getting that bit, that big picture story on scene. But most thermal patients or thermal injuries don't really need to be decontaminated. Now, if you start getting into alkalines and acids, things like that, what my suggestion would be is to really dive into what are the, what's the industry around your service area? What are you most likely going to come in contact with? And then figure out your game plan, look at your MSDS books and figure out what the compounds are going to be or what they suggest, what we do. Like you said, you know, do you use water? Do you use, just brush it off? But I think it's important to get, the, the topic is really wide. So I think al- dry alkalines, you, you rinse off and then, you know, you dive in into different types of acids. I really just think really knowing your industry around because that's going to be what you're going to be facing most often. So, and then in the in the hospital, what we end up doing is once they come here, we just pay, basically use like a HIPAA cleanse or a warm water. We get them in a warm environment, gentle scrubbing with really good pain control. <laughs> so that's kind of the big thing that we do here. Yeah. And so let's go back. You had mentioned electrical injuries before. Sure. What kind of things visually are you looking for to determine the severity of an electrical injury? Or can you even do that, right? Is there a way to tell from a lightning strike versus a minor electrical discharge from someone's working on a house or something like that? Well, I mean, again, the story is so important. And for us, the electrical injury, what it entails is we're worried about, it's going to look innocuous. Often there's an entry set and exit site and patients are often awake. What you have to look at is you have to, and this is kind of where being, you know, board certified and an upper extremity surgeon comes into play. We're, we're evaluating the the arms and the hands and the legs. So I'm going to take a look at the arm and feel it first of all to see if there's compartment syndrome. If there's not, I'm going to do a, a thorough neurovascular exam. And so if they have some numbness or tingling or just complete dense paresthesias, they're unable to feel, I'm taking that patient to the operating room and I'm going to do a release of the upper extremity and of the hand. And I'm going to release their nerves, their carpal tunnel. I'm going to release their ulnar nerve. I'm going to do 10 compartments in the hand. And, and this should really be done by somebody who's well-versed in the the anatomy here because you can do some serious damage. But ultimately, you're saving that limb. And that's, I think it's very important not to miss those things because if that's missed, that's a lifelong disability for that patient. More importantly, you know, there's other things you're looking for. You're looking for cardiac issues. You're going to get an EKG. This is where your ER helps out. And if there's any electrolyte abnormalities, you want to correct those. As small as an electrical burn can be, I usually will admit them for 24 hours just to get some serial EKGs, maybe get some troponins, make sure that there's no outlying numbers that we have to watch for. And often we're getting cardiology involved. And so these small little burns that seem like they're nothing, we have to really watch them. Aside from that, renal issues, because once the electrical burn can really injure muscle and other organs in the body, and really that builds up byproducts within the blood. And when the kidney has to filter these out, it can have a hard time. And so you can get into kidney injury and kidney failure and those kind of things. You're calling nephrology, you're taking care of it. Some of these issues yourself, but these patients need to be monitored. So a small electrical burn injury is often a big deal. And that's often seen when you're using the Parkland formula because it warrants a higher rate, 4 mLs per kg. And so 
that's to help flush things out. So I think that, again, starting at the story, if you know about it, now you can look for these things. If you have no idea, you may miss a hand injury. You may miss a leg compartment syndrome. You may miss something. And the patient ultimately suffers because of that lack of information. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are those are all good points there. You know, one thing just pre-hospital-wise that I was thinking about, and, and honestly, it goes into the ER and, and the burn ICU, because a lot of times these patients come in and we get a report from a sending facility and then all of a sudden the flight team is there. And so I think it, it kind of goes across all boards is that with electrical injuries, like Dr. Policato said, you know, they're often larger than what they really look like. And I think with these types of injuries, anyone who's caring for them needs to be about five steps ahead. So you really need to get those IVs established. You really need to ask yourself, what am I missing? Do 12 leads. And then also just be ready for cardiac arrest. That's one of the biggest things that can happen with an acute electrical injury. And this includes not only just AC and DC, but also lightning as well. And so you're going to get all of those into this picture. And then when, when you've got a lot of energy, what you also want to remember is that you can also have a lot of trauma. So, you know, bones break uh, when muscle contract and you can have that patient thrown across the room and have tertiary injuries from that or even projectiles. So you don't want to get distracted by this very simple appearing thing. You want to really treat them like they could easily become your most critical patient of your career. Yeah. Like I said, some of these are really scary patients, right? And that's why there's such a high degree yeah. of anxiety around these burn patients. High acuity, low volume. One of the biggest things that in, in my career, what I've found that helps me always stay focused and to be able to do that five step ahead thing is to really prepare. Did you ever hear about the six P's? No. No, in your email with uh, DG now? No. So proper preparation prevents piss poor performance, right? <laughs> and so I, I think that that goes a long way because when we start talking about these critical patients, you really do need to be ahead of the game. You can't be behind the eight ball. And so preparing, going over what you're going to do, playing, doing that role play, what if scenarios and, and walk through them from the very beginning to the time that you get to the ER. Or if you're in the ER staff, walk through when that patient comes into your department, how do you take care of them? And burn patients and electrical injuries are very complex. And if you don't practice them, you're not going to do very well. We often think we do really well. <laughs> you know, I, I won't mess anything up. It'll all be okay. But in reality, we just don't perform as well as we think we will. Yeah. It's all, I got this until you're on scene and then you don't got it anymore. No, no, Happens. not at all. No. I have lots of memories of those. I can tell plenty <laughs> yeah. of stories about calls I thought I had. Oh, yeah. Didn't have. Yeah. And a lot of these things, a lot of these pitfalls are prevented by just the collaborative nature of our our burn team. I mean, the ER here is just phenomenal. It's, uh, you know, Dylan Loyton from day one has been a big proponent of our program and has been really not just supportive, but wants to understand it. And now, you know, Nick Sippis, who's uh, one of the ER docs and our specific burn liaison is just, I mean, I think the guy's a burn surgeon sometimes because he's, he's so interested. And I think that he will add another level of expertise down there just just so that if the head of the department and the liaison knows this much about burn, everyone's going to want to know about burn. And so I think yeah. ultimately uh, these just having our somewhat of our burn tentacles in all different facets is going to be super helpful for us and, and for the patients at the end of the day. It's a true win. And when we get these patients that are super successful, we had a 74-year-old with a 70% burn who, um, I mean, he's a well-to-do guy who's doing awesome. He's flying planes now. When they come back to clinic, I see them for like two minutes and I say, hey, these are the visits you need to make. You need to go to the IC. You need to go to the ER. You need to go. And they're like, yeah, yeah, no, we, we, we that's what we want to do. And so It's awesome think, when they come see us. Yeah, and I think when they go and see these different people, I mean, you've seen them kind of bandaged up with tubes and grafts and bleeding. And then when you see them like walking in with their regular clothes and their family, 
that that's why you do this stuff. And so I think that, like I said, every aspect of our team and every little dimension of it has helped get these patients to where they're, where they're at. So we've talked about thermal burns. We've talked a little bit about some chemical burns, some electrical burns. I know airway is always a big component to any burn, especially a thermal burn. It's easy to get burns in the airway. It's easy to have carbon monoxide or cyanide poisoning because everything's made of plastic and styrofoam and cheap stuff from China that burns like crazy. So what should the pre-hospital provider be thinking about and worried about in an airway? Is it early innovation? Is it vitamin B, hydroxy or hydrocobalamin? What should we be thinking about when you see those airways? I think that, you know, we always leave it to the the provider. They're the eyes, like you said before, you know, I'm not there. And so if they're concerned about this patient has, you know, lip swelling and bad inhalation burn, worried about the airway, we leave it, we defer to them to intubate. And if you feel like intubation is necessary, early intubation can be life-saving. I think in terms of carbon monoxide, you know, there's good evidence that just providing high flow oxygen, nasal rebreather, those kind of things can take care of it. Now, we do have hyperbaric chambers. And the reason for that is, and this is kind of some an education point, some people think it's to decrease the level of the carbon monoxide quickly. Yes, that is a that is a immediate effect, but really there's some literature, and albeit it's not the strongest literature, but there is some literature that shows that using hyperbaric oxygen can prevent neuropsychiatric sequelae later in life. So if you have, if we get a call, a patient's got a level of like 25, 30, they're ataxic or they have a loss of consciousness, this may be the patient that you do hyperbaric oxygen treatment for to prevent some of the things like, you know, uh, concentration, forgetfulness, psychiatric disorders. It's almost like a brain injury. Exactly. Yep. And is, is it truly like an anoxic brain injury? It's hard to know uh, exactly, but I think there are some elements. And so there are, have been some papers that have been written about that, but there are some elements of TBI that can be similar to carbon monoxide. But I think ultimately that Evidence is not 100%. It's not like cardiac surgery where I give you a bypass, your heart works again. It's They've seen some, there's some studies that show a benefit, and actually there are some studies that show the opposite. And so we take that pretty seriously. So when we bring somebody on, it's not like 100% you're going to get hyperbaric oxygen. If you have cardiac issues or pulmonary issues, or if you have ear trauma, or if you're claustrophobic, you're probably not going to get the HBO treatment because the risk to reward ratio is not in your favor. And so ultimately, it's going to be a, uh, well, at least in terms of hyperbaric treatment, it's not going to be something that's the standard, but it's one of the resources we have. And we have two chambers right in our unit. You want to comment on anything? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's a great question to try to talk about airway. And, and again, I think it crosses all sorts of boundaries, not just pre-hospital, not just ER, not just burn center, but all of them. As I think you have to have that great story. You really need to know if they were in an enclosed space and have this high high suspicion that you are going to have that sickest patient. So asking questions is the biggest thing. Get some, get some vitals. Look at that patient. And one of the biggest things that I've found in my career is that when you do that first assessment, you can't get distracted with the other hundred things you have to do before you do another assessment. You really do have to do really quick assessments. Sometimes they're minute by minute. Uh, other times they're maybe every 10 minutes if you don't see any changes. But here's the fact though, is that if you have an inhalation injury, time is going to be your enemy because you've got injured tissue, whether you have carbon monoxide or cyanide poisoning is just kind of the devilish icing on the cake. You know, it just adds, makes things worse. But if you just got an inhalation injury, most people think that that's because of all the, the heat that they breathe in and it's it's not really. And Dr. Policato was helping me with this when I first came on board, but it's because of the chemicals that you breathe in when it gets down to lower bronchial trees. So if you think that they have an inhalation injury, you have to really be able to move towards help or get help moving to you if you don't have the capabilities to do an RSI. And if you 
start seeing symptoms like if their voice changes, if they're coughing, if they've got higher FiO2 requirements, if they have increased work of breathing, simple stuff. Now, this may be complicated because uh, they've got COPD or asthma or something else uh, that's going on. And it actually can be a lot worse if they've got a septic component as well, like if they've got pneumonia, because your your reserve is going to be really low. The first pass success rate of getting that tube in the trachea becomes even more important because you don't have the time to get that. You don't have time to muck around. You know, you really need to get the tube in the in the trachea. So that first pass success is key. So I think those are really big things. And the other thing is when we're talking to our, you know, I hope our listeners hear this is because everyone is going, when they encounter a really big burn and they've got inhalation injury, they're going to feel very overwhelmed very quickly. And it doesn't matter if it's an EMT medic flight nurse with tons of experience, or if you've got a physician with a lot of ER experience, even the critical care physicians. When you have an airway go bad, when you have external burns and you've got zero room in that oropharynx to maneuver, you are going to rely on your training. And this is something that we that we really have to rely on is to we train to fail. Like you're, you train like you're going to fail. If you train like you're going to fail, then you're going to do every ounce of effort to making this a successful procedure. And you're going to know exactly how to do this. So I want the listeners to know that they're able to concentrate, they're able to focus, and the gaining the ability to do that is acquired through training. And so you just have to train, 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 and, and then really be able to assess, even if there's a small change, and switch gears. I think one of the things that Sean touched upon is obviously the airway. When patients come into the ER, number one, if they're tubed, you want to make sure the tube's in the right place. And this is where our trauma critical care team can, and often acts quickly, where they'll assess and see whether this patient needs to be bronched. And sometimes they'll just bronch in the ER or into the, in the unit. And that information can tell us a lot. If it's a clean bronch, no airway issues, then you know that this patient will probably get an early extubation. If the airways are burned and there's significant scarring or significant soot, this patient may be somebody that may need an early trach. Now, you have to think about the airway the same way as the skin. The skin, once it's burned, it's never going to be the same, even if you do grafts. The same way is, the same is true for the airway. So if the quote-unquote skin of the airway, the epithelium, gets burned, it's going to scar up. Those airways, those bronchioles are going to be smaller. It's going to be less lung vital capacity and all those things. And so that's going to be a lifetime change for that patient. So it's think, those are things to think about in these uh, really sick burns because it's not just the external burn. It's also the internal effects as well. So quick time out. I think we're probably going to run out of time to sure. get into the reconstructive yeah. surgery. So I guess the last thing that I want to talk about is is pediatric burns. And I know that this is a whole can of worms, but how are pediatric burns different from adult burns or what are some of the things to focus on with a pediatric injury? I think anytime you have a pediatric injury, you want to, number one, rule out abuse. And so that takes uh, a few people to look at this patient. And really the story is important, but we have you know, our intensivists, Dr. Ann Gooding and Dr. Carlos Barajas that have just been instrumental in creating a very effective burn program here, but also they'll, they'll assess the patient with us. And if there's abuse, then that goes down a different algorithm. Now, if it's not abuse, Again, you know, the pediatric patient, burns are assessed by the rule of nines or the Palmer method. Their skin ratio, their total body surface area is a little bit different. And so they have a little bit less skin. And so they need to be warm. They, the fluids need to be a little bit less. And things, calculations are have to be a little bit more precise. Dressings have to be uh, really monitored. And so things like that are really important. Nutrition has to be optimized. The fluid's a little bit different. And so I think this 
pediatric realm of burn really warrants a full discussion. And, you know, you could do a full other podcast based on that. All right. Are you calling out Dr. Brahas then? Oh, yeah. We'll get him in here with we'll us. We'll get him we'll... in here. And, you know, he's he's an awesome guy. He's a friendly guy. He's a super competent doctor, smart as heck. And uh, I think you'd really well-spoken. I think we'd really uh, enjoy his uh, take on pediatric burns. I'd actually love to know what he thinks when he first hears there's a 30% pediatric patient coming in. What a 50%, what do, what do you do? And so it would be a nice... Aside like, from puckering up a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I think we'd have a nice relay system, kind of like how Sean and I typically do for that. Perfect. Well, let's plan on that. This is kind of your chance for final thought, last pearl. If you were to give kind of one little word of wisdom for pre-hospital providers regarding burn, what would it be? I think as providers, we are super passionate about what we do. You know, we're plastic reconstructive surgeons that do zero cosmetic surgery. We do heavy reconstruction. We do heavy burn. And so we just want the people on the field to know that we really appreciate what they do. And when they come in, the first thing I do is I give the team a pound, I, you know, see how the flight went, see how they're doing. Because I, you know, I'm, again, I'm waiting for trauma to take care of the patient. And those guys are often standing there. And, you know, I think recognition is very important for that, those guys because, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting in an ER not putting my life on the line. Those guys are flying in the middle of storms. They're driving in the middle of, you know, I-70 and the, could be drunk drivers could be animals on there you, you didn't know and they're going at speeds just to get the patient to do their job correctly so i think we recognize you we appreciate you none of these outcomes could be possible without you that being said if you ever send a patient to us we're going to treat that patient like they're our family we're going to do everything we don't cut corners no one in this program cuts corners and if they did they wouldn't be a part of this program you'd be such an outlier you wouldn't feel like this is your program. If you felt like you were, tr you'd be called out. And so I think it goes back to our philosophy in Burn Reconstructive Centers of America is to heal the patient, heal families, and transform lives, and just really make sure that all of those tenants are present in every encounter, every phone call, every decision that we make. So we trust you guys, and just uh, I want to make sure that you guys feel comfortable when you send a patient here. And often, if you come here and you want to know how a patient does, just come up to the unit, come up to the clinic, and we'll pull up photos, we'll show you how the patient did. And I often, you know, I know you mentioned I give a lot of lectures, I give a lot of talks on case presentations and some of these before and afters so that these first providers, these EMTs, paramedics who are on the scene allow some closure for them because I'm sure they're wondering, how did that chemical burn do or did I make the right decision? And I'll get questions in the from the audience saying, hey, I, I did this. Was that right? And almost 95% of the time, the answer is yes, it was is right. You did what you could do given the resources and the time you had. I can always sit back and look at a piece of paper and say, oh, the timeline showed that this should have been done. That should have been. This is real-time decisions in microseconds being made to save lives. So we really appreciate you. And Sean, do you have anything to add here? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, this morning I was listening to one of your podcasts, The Art of the Handoff Report but with Dr. Hunt. <laughs> and we talked about the importance of getting that story. And it reminded me, you know, about four weeks ago, I came in and gave literally the worst report ever in my 30-year career, and I totally had like verbal yard sale. So I think it's uh, it's important to practice the things you're going to do, uh, which I've learned from my experience. <laughs> and so practice what you're going to do. Get that good story. And then practice all your treatments. And when we have a patient in front of us, never stop thinking. A friend of mine who was a, a paramedic mentor said, don't stop thinking. Don't stop asking, what am I missing? So you really do need to do that. And then when we talk about it, you need to always ask those questions, never stop thinking. And remember, with burn patients, if there's an airway involved, 
time is going to be your enemy because with time means swelling. And so those are the, those are the big things. Uh, you know, don't worry about the burn. Focus on saving that patient's life if there's life-threatening injuries. So those are the kind of the big things. And remember, the, these are high acuity, low volume patients. So ask a friend, go to help, get help moving towards you. You know, all of these things. Put the time in for training, and you're you're going to perform a lot better. And what I've heard as we've been discussing, I've been taking some notes, and I have story and history written down like 10 times. Oh, Getting yeah. that good story, seeing the scene, that seems to be a huge tenant of successful handoff. So quick plug, speaking of case reviews and lectures, you are going to be doing a talk at MSAC this year, the Emergency Medical Services Association of Colorado yeah. is going to be hosting you for, I think it's going to be an all online conference this year, thanks sure. to COVID, but super excited about that and what you're going to bring to the table. So anybody who's looking for more, looking for some visual to go along with the audio, that should be really fantastic. Cool. MSAC.com. Um, anything else before we go? Jordan, thank you so much, man. Um, you, you're always a pleasure to work with. We love talking to you. We love your beard. It's amazing. <laughs> um, and uh, I think that HCA Swedish has a real, real resource in having you do these kind of things because it's one thing to sit in a corner and do awesome stuff, but to actually take that work and relay it in a palatable, in an understandable way to the public to the different healthcare realms that takes some some expertise and that's where you come in and you can get the word out your job is almost as important as sean's job as heidi's job as my job is so i think it's really you know we're really honored to work with you and I, and I take these things seriously i change my or day based on these kind of things and so i just want to let you know that we really kudos to you big props and every time we get to hang out it's always fun and it's always a, a, a nice experience yeah well absolutely. thank you that's super nice to hear and and i know that this comes from a place of a desire for this so yeah, yeah. the fact that you make this commitment and and understand that ems should know this and wants to know this is huge so absolutely. thank you yep. and jordan thanks a lot for having me on the show it's been awesome being on the emergency medical minute uh, if your listeners are interested in learning more about burn we've got our own burn care radio podcast where and do we the, find that dude we find that everywhere <laughs> it's on tons of channels Channels, but you know, Apple, sells Apple, Google. CDs in his trunk, dude. I've got my DJ table ready to roll. Uh, but yeah, if they want to learn more about burn, check that out. But uh, you know, it's always awesome to, to collaborate with you. We've known each other for a long time, both pre hospital and in the hospital here. So you always do great work. So to all the EMS and, and burn center staff, you know, take care of each other and be safe out there. Thank you so much, both of you. I really appreciate your time. That's right, man.